0: I'm Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington. It's really good to be with you. We are picking up in the Ten Commandments, and we are on the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Before we dive into that, though, I want to give you all um, a tool to help you understand how to apply, how to see the Ten Commandments, how to interact with them. And this is a tool that comes from history, the church um, over the ages has kind of wrestled with this question of like, how are Christians on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to interact with the Ten Commandments? And it's called the threefold use of the law. So there's three kind of categories for us to see how the law remained useful for us, even though in other ways it doesn't remain useful for us. Like, it's no longer a way for us to relate to God. We are not under the law, but we're under the gospel, and yet there still is a use for it. So the threefold uses of the law, um, I like to kind of think of in picture terms. They kind of help me. So the first is a mirror. The law is like a mirror, in that it will show you your flaws. It will show you where you fall short of God's standards. But the right way to think about that is that as you look into the mirror of the law, you see your need for a Savior. You see your need for Jesus. The second use of the law is like a fence. It's like a fence because the law as given to this world from God as a way of revealing God's holiness, his justice, his righteousness, it restrains evil. And so the law and the threat of the law actually restrains evil, both in our lives but also in the world that we live in because it was given publicly. And God has unleashed his righteousness on the world. And again, it's not perfectly... It doesn't eliminate evil, but it restrains it. And so it's good in that way. And then finally, the law is also a path in that it shows us how to walk in righteousness. It shows us how to walk a life that is pleasing to God. And again, we know that that's not how we earn our relationship with God, but it is the way that Christ walked. And it's the way that we are to follow Christ as he walked. And Jesus says as much when he says that the most important law is that we are to love God and to love others. And he summarizes the Ten Commandments in that way. And so I think that that can be useful, especially when we get to a commandment that, um, you know, the longer that you think about it, the worse it gets. Because you can read this in a list and just go right past it. But this was given to Israel not as a way to kind of just like go right past and move on to the next thing, but to chew on, to meditate on, to think about, to digest. And it was given to Israel in a very specific context. It was given to Israel right after they had been under the tyrannical oppression of Egypt. They were enslaved. They had a wicked master. The god of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, were used against them to oppress them. And so it got so bad to the point right before um, Moses delivered them that Pharaoh was commanding the murder of every Israelite boy who was born. And so the image that the prophets give for God's law, or one of the images, is rain coming to a parched land. And think about this. If you are Israel, and you are for the first time receiving explicitly the laws of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you had just been living under a tyrannical rain, that was systematically murdering your sons, and then this word was spoken to you, you shall not murder. It would have been soothing. It would have been soothing because it was a reminder that there is justice and that the God that loves us is just and righteous and that he is not going to justify unjust killing. He is not going to oppress a helpless people. He's not going to try and squeeze water from a rock that can't be squeezed anymore. But he's good. And he's holy. And so it would have been like water to a parched land, but it also would have been in some ways a condemnation of them. Because they were filled with anger. They were filled with hatred for each other. They were human, just like you and I are human. And so at the same time that it communicates God, God's holiness, it also communicates to us our sin. And so it's that context that we pick up this commandment and kind of chew on it and look at it. And so I want to, um, I want to read this. And then we'll pray and get into how, how this is relevant for us. How this is kind of deeper than maybe just the final act of murder. But it's tied to a con, an entire culture of death that we interact with regularly. So I'm going to read, we're going to um, also read the preamble to the Ten Commandments, verses 1 and 2, because they really frame the, the commandments themselves. And then we'll just read commandment. 6, verse 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come to you this morning as your creatures. Lord, we recognize that we are dependent on you for everything that you have made us, that you have given us life. And so, Lord, I ask that you would humble us this morning, that you would place us under your good authority, that we would receive it, not as insecure rebels, but as children who are thirsty for your righteousness. God, I ask that you would still our hearts, that you would quiet our souls, that we would be able to receive Your word this morning, and that we would also be inspired by your Son. That we would see his life, his teaching, his death on our behalf, and that it would produce in us a new life, a life that boils up and out of us and into this world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You shall not murder. This is a placeholder. It's, a, um, it's an example of a category, not a limit. So it's not exhaustive in what it's describing, but it's categorical in what it's describing. And we know this because this is how Jesus interprets it. It's how Jesus interprets it when he says, You have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, anyone who is angry at his brother... Anyone who says fool, anyone who condemns, they will be condemned. And so you see that really this is attached to um, not just behavior, not just the external um, living out or fulfillment of it, but it's this entire kind of vein or it's this entire channel of anger, of hatred, of malice, of strife. I want to give us three categories for us to think through what this commandment is really talking about. And it's, um, it's from Jesus as well. It's when Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd in contrast to a fake shepherd who he calls a thief in John 10.10. He says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy to steal and to kill and destroy. And so those are the categories that I want to understand this whole kind of interconnectedness of a culture of death that we live in. Things that steal from us, things that kill us, things that destroy us and our neighbors and our family and our friends. And I'm going to give a couple of examples in each of these categories. Um, These examples, again, they're not exhaustive, but I think that they're relevant for us. I think that they're important for us to reckon with. Because you are being impacted, friends, by this culture of death, and you probably don't even know it, because you've just become accustomed to it. It's just the air that we breathe so often. And so I want to kind of maybe challenge some things, maybe open up some things, shine some light on things that we haven't considered before so that we can actually understand how Jesus leads us back into life in areas of death. And so first we're going to talk about stealing, things that steal life. Because think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there is a thief in this world that is trying to steal life from you. As real as he is, as the good shepherd, there is also a thief that is real and is trying to steal life, steal fullness of life from you. And the first thing that I thought about for us in this category is the media. Social media. I'm, I'm talking about big categories, not just mainstream media. No, it's everywhere. Every type of media. And specifically, when we're talking about murder and anger and turmoil, I thought about Facebook and Twitter. We'll get to Instagram when we talk about lust and envy. <laughs> but Twitter and Facebook, they are the platforms that are built for anger and hatred. It's not that it just you can get sucked into it, when you go onto it, you have to know that that's what it's designed for, friends. It's designed to make you angry. Why is it designed to make you angry? Well, because we figured out when people are angry, they actually pay attention. They invest energy in things that they're angry about. And so, there's a lot of money to be made by making you angry, by getting you to hate, by filling you with hatred and turmoil and controversy. And what it's doing is it's kind of undermining and chipping away at the relationships, the real relationships of our society. And we see this in so many different ways. But you get angry at people that you've never met before. And then when you do meet someone who's kind of in that category, at the very best, maybe you're just kind of cold and chilly towards them. Or maybe you go right into assuming the worst about them, hating them, wanting them to suffer, wanting them to fail. An example of this for me um, happened just yesterday. But, you know, it's a Saturday. We're enjoying a nice day at home. And all of a sudden, there's like this like, very frantic knocking at our door. I'm like, oh no. I ignore it because, you know, that's what you should do in that situation. But it persists. And I go to the door, and it's this little like, girl about this tall. And she's got these glasses on. I'm like, okay. I open the door, and she's like, oh, friend. And she just runs into the house. I'm like, what is this? And I look at her mom, and her mom's like, Um, i'm like what is happening and i am like okay this must clearly be one of my daughter's friends who she knows at school and they come in and they just kind of invite themselves in to our house we're like okay this this, we're doing this now and it's a it's a contrast in lives right like there is it's oil and water in terms of what they, how their family operates, how our family operates. And it's uncomfortable, and it's hard, and I'm frustrated. <laughs> and I'm angry. I'm like, the piece of our home is upset right now, and I know why. And it's this person. And, you know, this happens to me because I have to study the Bible for my job and think about things like anger and murder. And I was thinking about, like, you know what? this is cutting to the exact core of what this commandment is talking about. My disposition towards her, towards that family, was not one naturally of love, of service, of humility, but it was one of irritation. I just wanted them to go away. It had been a busy week. I was tired. Life is hard. And I was realizing how so much of our everyday lives just primes us to not love people very well. We're too busy. We're too frustrated with other things. We're just moving too fast. And that is so so much of that, I'm convinced, is a direct product of how we've conditioned ourselves to interact primarily through social media, where it's like quick, transactional, and we don't see the other person as a human. It's not just social media, but that's an easy target. Even as we drive in cars, we're driving right next to somebody, but we don't really see them, we just see their car, so we get angry at kind of this inanimate thing, but in that machine is a person with context, is a person with a life, with a story. And the call of this commandment is that we would be aware of all of the things that try and steal the life that God wants us to live for other people from us. It's selfishness, it's pride, it's arrogance. It's the root of one type of anger that leads to murder. And then there's killing. And this is, it's, again, it's not the limit, but it's real. That killing is the ending of a life unjustly. That's the kind of killing that is talked about here. It's a very specific Hebrew word that's apart from just like causing someone to no longer live, but it implies injustice. And so in our society, in our world, it's the same as it always has been. The ones who are the weakest are the most vulnerable. And they're the ones that society usually justifies killing unjustly. And in Israel, they had lived in that system. They had been oppressed. They wanted their sons to live, and their sons were being taken from them and murdered. And the government was doing it. The ruling authority was doing it. And I think for us, we have to be aware of ways that we are going to be tempted with the power that we have been entrusted with to do the same thing. Any unjust killing of a life is forbidden. Beginning of life and end of life issues are going to be the most prevalent where we see this. But it's not the only ones the murder rate in minority communities is way higher than in majority communities. Are we okay with it? I don't know. We have to think about these things. You are going to be tempted eventually. People in this room, I know for a fact that some of you, as you are the, um, the medical power of attorney for people in your life, and they come to the end of their life, you are going to be asked to do things that will violate and break God's law. Because this has always happened, but we come up with nice little names for it, and right now, it's medical assistance in dying, made. It is a usurping of God's authority over life, by the creation, by the creature, and saying, you know what? We are the ones who get to determine when life ends. And if we're suffering in a way that we don't think that we should, we should, we have the right to end that. And I get it. It sounds plausible. And especially when it is real people in real situations of suffering, you are going to be really tempted. And so I want to encourage you that this is one of the areas where God's law and God's people can be a resource, can help. That you need to use the resources that are given to you to help you think about those things carefully, thoughtfully, so that we can understand what it means to be a light in a darkening world. Because there's a thief, and he comes to kill. He doesn't want life. He wants life to end. And then he also wants to destroy life. To systematically chip away at the good things of this life. All of the things. It's not just living and breathing. But it's all of the good things that we enjoy. Your enjoyment of life being taken from you. Destroyed. And I was thinking about this, that Probably one of the areas that churches experience this aspect of the culture of death the most is with gossip. And how gossip, when we share things, when we talk about somebody with the intent to kind of tear them down, undermine them, cast them in a bad light, how that destroys Christian fellowship, Christian community. And just how easy it is to fall into that trap. You know, we've all done this. Let's be real. Like, and we, we, we're, we get really good at explaining it away. It's like, I, this might be gossip, but... And then you just go ahead and say it. It's like you know what you're going to do, but you think if you say that it might be gossip, that it's okay. no. Just stop. Don't say that. Because what will happen is that the words, once they leave your mouth, you can't get them back in there. And they go on a mission to destroy. And it chips away at the trust and the intimacy that should be experienced in the household of faith. And... When you have the cumulative effect of that over years and years, it just crumbles, and it disappears. And you're left with nothing. You're left with just a bunch of people who do things, but there's no love in them. It's destroyed it. It's destroyed it. So there's a thief, and he comes to kill, to steal and kill and destroy But the rest of that verse, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so getting back to our Saturday adventure, I was thinking as I was kind of picking up our youngest daughter who was very offended that there was another baby in the house and she was losing it. So I was trying to patch her back up. And I was like, why are we doing this? I don't know. Can we kick them out of our house? How do we do this? Need an exit plan. But I was confronted by the reality that my, my love, my strength, my own peace was completely insufficient to handle this situation. Like, I didn't really have anything to give, not that I could see anyway. But there was a reason that she came to our house. She's married to someone who's deployed overseas and has very few resources for parenting. She's from a different culture. She's isolated. She's alone. She doesn't have a church community. The the scraps that we had in that moment we were like a banquet for her. And it's not because of us. It was because that there was something present that I think we probably just take for granted. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, you just take it for granted that there is a power at work in you and in your home that's sustaining life. That is shouting light and love and peace to a world that's starving for it, that is showing parched land what it looks like to have water sprinkled on it. And all we had to do was just say, come on in. That's all we had to do. We didn't have to fix anything. That's what I thought. I'm like, oh, I have to fix this. It's a problem I have to solve. I don't want that. No. Yeah. Our kids are going to cry and fight, and you know, we're going to have to sit down with them and say, okay, so this is how we do things. Remi- remember, guys, um, we don't live like that. Here's how we live. But all of that is very basic. And so there are principles at work in Christ and then in his people that build up life. And so what you actually see is the fulfillment of this commandment. It's not just about not murdering. It's about flourishing. It's about human life that is full of joy and enjoyment and happiness and fun and thriving and functioning. And how we get there is, we remember, this is what Jesus came for said, this is why I've come, that they would have life. Primarily, first and foremost, he came to pay the penalty of it. He came to pay the penalty of guilty sinners who had been working and laboring in the culture of death, agents of the thief who were guilty under the law. He came to die for them, to set them free from the law and then to enlist them in his family, to turn them back into agents of life. And he doesn't just want people to be alive. He wants them to have life abundantly. He wants them to have abundant life, a life of abundance, of meaning, of joy. And the life that he lived, I think you can kind of summarize as a life of sacrifice, a life of nurture, and a life of building up. And they really go against what the thief is trying to do in stealing and killing and destroying. Sacrifice, nurturing, and building up. So first, sacrifice. This is how to follow Jesus. This is how to walk. This is how to work for the God of life who wants to see this world thriving and relationships thriving, well, it requires sacrifice. He laid down his life for you. So you can give 45 minutes on a Saturday afternoon, hypothetically. He laid down his life for you so you don't have to earn your righteousness by hating your neighbor. You don't have to feel superior to someone else to feel valuable. You don't have to watch videos of how all of the other people out there that you're against are wrong and how you're right all the time because you're trusting in Christ for your righteousness, for your justification. He sacrificed for you. And so you, in turn, can sacrifice. You can willingly offer things to even your enemies. Trusting that you've been given everything that you need and that the source of your life is found in him, not in what you have, not in your own peace, not in your own safety even. So sacrifice, who can you sacrifice for? What are you going to be called to sacrifice? Maybe it's your schedule. Maybe it's how busy you are. That you have stopped seeing people as people but people just as widgets so that you can't take five minutes and have a conversation with somebody at the grocery store who's in desperate need of human connection so that you can't take the ten minutes that it would take to ask your neighbor how their day has been and to actually listen and to care. Maybe you need to slow down and sacrifice some productivity, sacrifice getting some things done, so that you can just be a person. What about nurturing? So, nurturing is the, is the um, act of making sure that life flourishes, that things grow. One of the best pictures that we probably have is like a gardener who goes out and pulls weeds and waters and fertilizes and plants and tills well, we are also called to nurture life. So how can you nurture life? How are you, well, let me rephrase that. How are you nurturing life? Because I want, I was thinking about this. I have seen this happening at our church, and I think this is one of those things where we just take it for granted. We have we have a ton of little kids for the size of church we are. And so people are having babies, and that's a really hard season of life. And there's just kind of an, A network of people that come alongside and help in a hard season. And why do we do that? I don't know. It just kind of happened. But what I see in it is I see that God is working through this church to nurture life. And it's a fulfilling of this commandment that's beautiful, that's powerful. And if you haven't experienced that, watch other people experience it talk to them, ask them, so what was it like to just receive meals for 15 days in a row when you're not sleeping and couldn't even think of food? It's amazing. What's it like when you are in need and people show up and bring you something that helps you? It's nurturing. It's a desire to see those people grow. And it's part of the culture of this church. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. And it's how God weaves his love into the fabric of his people. And so continue to nurture each other in that way. Continue to look for ways that you can nurture each other, that you can encourage the growth of another. And then finally, building up. So in contrast to destroying, how can we build each other up? How can we live lives of encouragement to another? If we're not gossiping, then what are we doing? Are we just silent? No. We should be using our voices to build up, to build life, to encourage. And it's not just, this doesn't happen just kind of like instantly. It's thoughtfulness. It's having an eye towards things that you can encourage in another person. It's being aware of them as valuable in the community that you live in and exist in. Do this in your community groups. Do it in, on Sunday mornings. Do it in your homes. But also do it in your workplaces. Encourage and build up in all of the places that you go. And you'll see this flourishing start to take place. You'll see the grace of God start to touch really real people. And it's, I'm telling you, in this world, in the city that we live in, when this happens, it is like rain in a desert. Because, first of all, it's going like to create a flood. People aren't going to know what to do with it. They're going to think that you're probably like a Mormon or something. <laughs> but no, keep doing it, persevere in it, and pretty soon... It's going to cause growth in a place where it just looks dead. Because this is what Jesus has come to do, and it's what he does in this world through his people. So you use your voices to fulfill this commandment. Build people up, encourage. It's how God is going to show this world who he is. He's going to do that through us. So as I thought about how my own efforts of loving this family um, fall short, it made me incredibly grateful for how God has chosen to relate to us. Because all of the things that we just talked about, all the different ways that we kind of see um, how the thief still steals and kills and destroys and all of the things that we are called to do as God's people, all of those things, if you're not understanding them in a, in a right way, can feel like an immense weight that you're constantly having to carry and that you're trying to do on your own. And this would have been what it would have been like to relate to God through the law. Paul says this about the law. He says that the law cannot produce what it commands. And in his own reflection and meditation of the law, he sees his wickedness. He sees his own hopelessness in being able to fulfill it. He cries out at the end of Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? If you try to fulfill the law on your own, it's not going to work. And you are going to become depressed, anxious, frustrated, angry, and you're going to hate God for putting that burden on you. But thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ has rescued me from the condemnation of the law. We have received the gospel to be our life, to be our redemption, to be our rescuer. And that is really the call that we receive today as his people, is that we have been entrusted with the words of life, with the message of eternal life. And that that is ultimately the only thing that can combat a culture of death, that can keep the thief at bay in this world is by proclaiming our Redeemer, by sharing the gospel with our neighbor in word and deed. And so think about that. Think about what you have been given, what you have been set free from. Remember that I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. We've been rescued but we've also been given the good news to share, to proclaim, so that we can continue to see that work happen. And that is the type of life that is worth living, the type of life that is a joy to live, that's an opportunity to serve and to nurture and to build up. It's no longer a duty only, but it's an opportunity, it's a joy. And that happens through the Spirit. It's not by our own strength. So take those steps of faith. You're not going to want to do it, I promise you, unless you're much holier than I am. You're not going to want to do it at first. But do it anyway. And trust that God will provide what you need along the way. And that he is going to be the one who is filling your interactions with other people with life and abundant life. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have showered us, Lord, with your mercy and your grace through your Son, that you have also shown us real and tangible ways that we can love you and love our neighbor, that we can love the people that we interact with, that you have called us to something better than ignoring that you have called us to something better than hating, than being bitter, than being self-righteous. Lord, and so I ask that we would be humbled by your call on our lives and that we would be responsive to you, Lord, that we would believe that you truly do work through your people and that we would open our lives up to that work. And God, we see that in our Lord, in the Good Shepherd, and we Now worship him for the life that he has given us, the eternal life that we get to spend with him and with each other. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.